Well, good morning. If you'd like to go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, the 19th chapter. Revelation chapter 19, we'll be reading from there in just a moment. While you turn there, I'd like to extend the welcome that's already been extended by Brother Joe. It's so good to see each and every one of you, uh, especially uh, gathering together and, and, and being here for the, the purpose of worshiping our Lord and Savior, remembering the death that He died for us on the cross. It is just such a, a, a powerful reminder for us of, of whose it, it is we belong to. And <clears throat> I am thankful for each and every one of you for, for being here. If I seem out of sorts this morning, there is a reason for that. I woke up this morning, turned my alarm clock off, fell back asleep and dreamed that I got up and started getting ready to come here. And, and so I completely feel out of sorts right now. Uh, I'm gathering myself back together, but as you can tell, I sometimes forget things still. <clears throat> but here in the book of Revelation, we are going to jump into our lesson and spend just a little bit of time uh, here, and then we'll come back to this verse later on in the lesson. But over the past several weeks, we have been looking at this, this concept of, of the church and its identity. What is the, the identity or the image of the church that has been given to her? Given to her not by man, but by a perfect and awesome God. Several Sundays ago, we looked in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we saw that the church is described as the body of Christ, having as her head our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because we are His body, we are to have a certain relationship with one another. We are to have a care for one another, and, and, as, and to do that as individuals. But we are also supposed to have a care for one another as a whole, for the church as, and the body as a whole, in order to keep it pure and to keep it free from corruption. In Matthew chapter 28, we also saw that the, in the Great Commission that we have marching orders. We have directions given to us as the army of the Lord. We see in Ephesians chapter 6 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But we are not to be some sort of radical force taking the fight physically to the world, but rather we are to be a rad, taking a radical stand for God's truth fighting principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness. We saw we are to be spiritual soldiers of Christ. Today I want to get us another view of how God describes His church. We see it over in Revelation chapter seven or chapter 9, verse 7. Excuse me, Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. That is, we are the bride of of Christ. The marriage of the church, those who believe and submit in obedience to Jesus, her bridegroom, is an eternal marriage. That is to say, it is a 100% faithful marriage. He is 100% faithful always. The Bible tells us that all who believe and are immersed in Jesus' death through baptism and therefore saved by grace through faith are the bride of Christ. Now, as I put together this lesson and, and I studied for this lesson, I really struggled with which way to take it. Because we've been talking about marriage and the family this year and growing in these relationships. And there is much to be learned from Christ's love for the church and the relationship that we are to have as husbands and as wives. And the fact is, God didn't model His love around marriage. He modeled marriage to reflect His love, modeled it around His love. But ultimately, as I thought about this lesson this morning, I wanted to take it in a different direction. I have two desires with this sermon this morning. One is to show that those who are saved, 
those who have, who have been immersed into Jesus' death, to help them understand what it means to be the bride of Christ. How should we respond to that knowledge? But also have those who, who maybe are not saved, those who do not know the Lord, have not submitted to Him in baptism, to see their, their need to make themselves ready. Because one thing we'll see throughout the course of this study is that Christ is returning. And when He does, it is to gather up His beloved, to gather up His bride, the church, and take her to be eternally with Him. What we are about to look at this morning is the greatest love story ever told. But to begin, we need to understand a little bit about the context in which this love story is told in. We need to look back to Jesus' day and consider some of the customs that existed in that day revolving around marriage. Because when we are called the bride of Christ, that's a very vivid picture that's being painted. But what does that mean? We must consider the context of that phrase to learn its full meaning today. Let's do this by considering the customs of the Jewish marriages of that day. The Jewish weddings of that day. There are three stages to a Jewish wedding in Jesus' day. And I want to point out right now, this is going to seem very, very different from our marriages, our weddings today, the things that we are accustomed, accustomed to today, because at, at very best, we maybe have two stages to our weddings today. Typically, if somebody was to ask you, are you married or, or you are unmarried, you, you would just answer one or the other. That's it. Now, now, granted, sometimes people might throw out, I am engaged. I'm engaged, and so that might be the the second stage of our weddings today, or or a second stage of our weddings today, but essentially that that really is just dating with the promise to marriage. Uh, But in in, in Jesus' day, there was so much more surrounding the marriage ceremony. And so what I want to do, What I want to do is to remove ourselves from our our 21st century American views on marriage and to immerse ourselves in the ancient Jewish customs of marriage, starting with the first stage, the contract. Now, when we think of contracts today, we think of maybe, maybe we think of prenups. We think of legal documents that are put in place for the mutual benefit of, of both parties. If something happens, I have what's mine, you have what's yours, we're going to go our separate ways, there's no fighting, there's no bickering, we know exactly what is there. This is totally not that. This is completely not that. The bride, who at this time would have, had complete, would have been completely under the control of her father, she would have had a say in who she chose as her groom. She, she didn't have to just marry the guy that her father picked. She could say no to that. And we often think of arranged marriages as a form of slavery. But here the daughter had the absolute right to refuse the marriage of the groom. But the groom and the father would sit down still. And they would negotiate this legal document. And and they would negotiate the conditions of the marriage. And this contract, this document, was what was called the ketubah. It was a legal and binding document. But the way it differs from today's documents, today's contracts is that its primary purpose was not the well-being of both parties. It was not the well-being of the one who initiated the contract. It was for the well-being of the bride. The father would sit down with the groom and use his very best wisdom to protect his daughter, to look out for her very best interests. And to do this, there were certain terms that they had to come to to, uh, understanding on. These terms were laid out in the document. 
It covered things such as the dowry. This was the money that was to be paid to the father of the groom. Again, this is not the, the worth of the bride, but this is the, the price that the, daughter, or that the father expected to be paid to be able to have the right to marry his daughter. And then there was the bride price. And again, this is not a price for the worth of the bride. This was a penalty that was paid out in the case of divorce without cause. Or if the groom decided to go take a second wife without the consent of his, of his, of his wife or his bride or her father. Now oftentimes this bride price was set at 50 shekels of silver. It was set at a very high price. Now one thing I want to notice here is that a big argument that's oftentimes made for about divorce today, was that in Jesus' time, he was so strict on divorce because it was, it was just rampant. People would just go and divorce people for no reason, and they would, they would just take extra wives, and women were just treated like livestock, like property. But if we know the customs of the day, that helps us to see that not only did women have a say in who they married, they could refuse that marriage, but it was also an incredibly expensive trifle to just randomly go and divorce somebody or to go take on more wives. In fact, this idea of polygamy that we see uh, prior to the days of Christ really wasn't as prevalent in his day as we sometimes think. Then there was also the inventory of the bride's estate. That would, they, they would sit down and they would examine all of her assets, everything that she owned, whether that be currency, if she owned, owned money, or if she owned livestock, or even if she owned businesses. They would sit down and then look at these things, and these things would, that, that belonged to the bride would be contributed to the groom's estate when they married. So we can see how this might be a beneficial thing to the groom when he is choosing his bride to look at someone that might help him beneficially. But after all this was done, after all this contract, the, the ketubah, after it's all laid out, <clears throat> and it's all drawn up, the groom would then take a cup, and he would pour out a, a, a glass of sweet wine, and he would set it out on the table for his bride to be. Now picture just for a moment the anticipation of that groom as he sets across the table, and remember, she doesn't have to accept it. She doesn't have to accept this cups, accept these terms, accept this marriage. And so the, the question, will she or won't she, it's kind of the, the picture that we sometimes think is, as, the, the, as the, or the groom gets down on his knee and he, he offers up that ring to his bride-to-be, will she say yes? It's kind of the image we see here as he slides that cup across the table. And this cup represented a blood covenant that was between the two of them. And again, she did not have to refuse, or did not have to accept. She could totally refuse it and take everything that goes with that. Everything that she might have benefited from this relationship is gone, not there. But if she did accept, if she did take that cup and she drank of that cup, the groom and the father would then sit down and sign the ketubah. And it was as if it was signed in blood. And the couple would now, at this point, 100% be married. They, as, as, as it's sometimes put, they would be bona fide. They were set. There was no dead, uh, question about it. It was legal. They were bound. But while they were legally married, sexual cohabitation would not begin until stage two. And stage two would not come around sometimes until what would be a year or even longer. This was well illustrated in the illustration of Joseph and Mary in their relationship. That even though they were betrothed, 
he had not known her. They did not have a sexual relationship with one another. They were legally married, but this relationship was, was more of the dating time. This is where they got to know one another. Again, this is really backwards from where we have, we kind of do this the, the opposite way. We get to know one another before the wedding and, and try to know everything about them. Can I, am I compatible this, with this person? Am I going to be able to love this person? They did this the exact opposite. They made the commitment to one another to be wed, to be married, and then they grew to know one another. They made the commitment to love one another before they really had a great picture of one another. Again, that idea is completely foreign in the days of Christ, of our our dating before marriage. At this point in their marriage, unlike our engagements, where if one party decides to leave, if one party says, you know what? This was a bad idea. This was a mistake. Here's the ring. I don't want to be your, your, your bride. I don't want to be your wife. You just you go and find somebody else. Or maybe I'm going to keep the ring and there's going to be bickering and fighting there. This was not the case in this situation. If they decide we don't like one another and we don't want to be with one another, it required a legal divorce. They had to go and get a certificate of divorce to be able to separate and to be able to dissolve this marriage. And so at this point, in stage number one, the groom, having, having signed the ketubah, his bride accepting the blood covenant between them, he showers his bride with gifts and even would give gifts to her father. And he would announce that his intentions, saying, I am going to leave and make a place for us. Prepare a place for us and I'm going to come back when it's ready and I'm going to get you. And so the bride would then be left waiting, anticipating the return of her groom. And this was the first stage of the Jewish marriage custom. In that first stage, we see a chosen bride, an accepted groom, a signed contract, a departing of the groom, and a waiting bride. And that brings us all around to stage two, the consummation. In this stage, we again see two very vivid pictures being painted for us. One of a patient bride and one of a laboring groom. Once the ketubah was signed, the couple would not consummate their marriage until the groom covered his financial obligations to the father of the bride. That was one of the things he must do. There was something that, that this was something that could take a lot of time often. You think back to Jacob and Rachel. Jacob and Rachel in the Old Testament, when he served Laban uh, for, for seven years to, to receive uh, Rachel, and then, and then according to the customs of that land, they said the, the oldest has to marry before the, the younger. So here, take Leah. He says, well, that's not right. That's not our agreement. And so after the seven-day honeymoon, the, the week-long honeymoon, he was given Rachel, but then was to, had to work another seven years. Technically, he, he, he served Laban for a total of 14 years to receive Rachel. So there was so much time that went in to being able to, to, before they were able to consummate this marriage, so much work that went in. But the groom also had to return home to his father and to his father's house, and to build a sort of honeymoon suite, if you will, a, a, honey, a honeymoon house. And it didn't matter how badly he wanted to go retrieve his bride. That might have been on his mind each and every day. I just can't wait to go back and, and get her and bring her home. He couldn't cut corners. He couldn't do shoddy work. In fact, he couldn't even build it to his own standards. He had to build it to the, to the, and receive the blessing of his father. He was seeking the approval of his father that the house was ready. 
So think about that for a minute. When we have our weddings, we send out our invitations in advance. Months in advance oftentimes. Someone says, what time's the wedding? We can tell them the time. They say, what day is the wedding? We can tell them the day. Where's it at? We know exactly. We know everything about that wedding so far in advance. But that's not the case here. If someone came to him as he's building that house and say, hey, when is, when is the consummation? When's the wedding? He would say, I don't have any idea. It's whenever my father decides for it to be. Only my father knows. Because it wasn't up to him. The father would use his very best judgment and wisdom. Because this would reflect on him. He would use his very best judgment and wisdom to say, the house is now worthy and ready for you to go retrieve your bride. But again, that's only half of the picture here. The other half is the patient bride. During this time, she is making herself ready for the return of the groom. When she went out, she would clothe herself with a veil. She would stand out amongst the people of the city. When they saw her walking down with this veil over her, that would say she is spoken for. Quite literally, it was telling people, this person is bought with a price. During this time, she would devote herself to purity, making herself beautiful for her coming groom. And this also meant that she belonged to him and to him alone. She wasn't available for any other suitor that might come along. And she was making that visibly known to the world. But eventually, eventually the waiting was over. The father would come and he would express his approval to the groom. The the, the house is now ready. Go get your bride. And he would leave to retrieve her. He would leave to sweep her off her feet and bring her home. And on the appointed day, again, set by the Father, on the appointed day set by the Father, the bridegroom would arrive. But again, it could be at any time. And so the bride had to be constantly on guard. She had to be constantly ready for this. And this was part of the romance. This is part of the beauty and the passion of the ceremony. That at any moment, my beloved might return to me and take me away, take me home. And so to prepare for this, it was customary for her to have at the ready her lamp, It would be trimmed and have oil, and she would have extra oil along with her, her veil, other necessities, and she would put these things by her bed, where they would be the the quickest to retrieve. And then likewise, her bridesmaids would be prepared and waiting with their lamps and their oil. Maybe think of a parable that relates to all this. The thing is, no one knew the time when the bridegroom might arrive. But when he came, When he came, it was a grand procession. As he and his friends came near the house, they would give out a great shout and they would blow on an instrument much like a trumpet of today known as a shofar. And you can picture this as the procession draws near and his friends in front of him shouting out, the groom has arrived. Or maybe, here comes the groom as opposed to here comes the bride today. And following this would be the sounding of the trumpet Everyone would know exactly what was going on. This was an exciting moment. This was an anticipated moment. And this was far from being done in secret. Even though it was often done at night, it was still a spectacle to behold. As they would come, this great procession, marching and and shouting and the trumpet blowing and lamps lit and torches ablaze, celebrating the coming of the groom. And when he arrived, he would take his bride and the procession would return to the place that he had prepared for his bride. Now what happens next 
And at the return of the groom and his bride, what happens next in today's culture really seems a bit unorthodox. And so I address it cautiously here because of this. As they arrive to their honeymoon suite, they would enter into the wedding chamber as, as uh, we, we think back to, to Jacob and Leah, they would oftentimes go in for a seven-day honeymoon. It would be a week-long event. And outside of the wedding chamber would be posted one of the groom's very best and closest friends, someone very respected and very trusted. Now again, this seems really strange that during this, this intimate time, you would think privacy would certainly be desired, but the purpose of this was to, per, uh, was to, to prove the purity of the, vi- the, of the bride, the virginity of the bride by blood. And so very simply put, a white linen would be placed across the bed, and the evidence of the purity of the bride would be on that sheet. And this would be folded and given to the parents of the bride. And this was a very, very important thing. Because it determined whether or not the bride was pure. And if the opposite was true, the bride was not pure, then oftentimes there would be great disappointment. But oftentimes there would likely be that the bride would be taken out and be stoned. So this was taken very, very seriously. This is a very important part of the wedding ceremony. And after all these requirements were completed, the marriage now being consummated, the bond being sealed, this would lead to the third stage of the wedding. That is the celebration. Following this, as the couple emerges from the wedding chamber, they would be met with great congratulation, great excitement, and the beginning of the wedding feast. This is the final stage of the Jewish wedding ceremony. It would be prepared in the house of either the groom's father or maybe some other very significant family member. And it would last for days. This is not what we think of as, as the reception dinner. Everybody goes and grabs some finger foods. Uh, maybe there's a, a nice meal prepared, but it lasts for a couple of hours and we all go home. This is days of feasting and celebrating. And we think about, the, and we think about this and the union that they had all been looking forward to for, for sometimes over such a long period of time. The work that the groom has put into preparing this place for the bride. The patience of the bride as she, she waited for the groom and she made herself uh, uh, pure and sanctified herself to put herself, set herself apart for her groom. All the time, all the effort, all the romance culminates in this union. It's time to celebrate at this point. Consider the events over in John chapter 2 when Jesus goes to the wedding feast of Canaan of Galilee, the, the site of Jesus' first miracle. And as pointed out in the text, they say, usually, usually you set out the good wine. And after that's gone, then you set out the bad wine. Well, here we see that they had, they had completely run out of wine. One can only imagine that they had done that, set out the good wine, and then the bad wine, and now we're out of wine. And yet the Jesus performs his miracle. We see here is the idea of something that's very long and very typically well-attended celebration of this union. Now, certainly... There's, there's more information that can be given, a more in-depth study uh, of these customs. But for our sermon this morning, this is the customs of the Jewish marriage. Again, maybe, maybe you are asking yourself, why, why is all of this important? Why, why bring all this up? Because that's a lot of info that I've thrown at you this morning. And I really appreciate your patience and ask you just to hang in there a little bit longer. We're going to just kind of draw all this together. But if you'll remember what I said at the beginning of the sermon, The Bible tells us that all who believe and are immersed in Jesus' death through baptism and therefore saved by grace through faith, the church is the bride of Christ. 
This was written with the imagery. This was written with the imagery of these ancient customs in mind. So, can we understand what it means to be the bride of Christ without this imagery? Yes, yes, we can. We can understand what it means to be the bride of Christ without knowing about the Jewish wedding ceremony, without knowing everything that goes into it. But can we more fully appreciate it? And therefore, more fully appreciate our salvation in Christ through His church, His bride by the customs of this day? Absolutely. And so let's spend just a little bit of time considering our marriage to the Christ. Over in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 7. Paul discusses those who are freed and those who are wed. In Romans chapter 7, he uses this to show that we are to be joined to Christ. Look in verse 4. It says, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. We are free from the law. From, the sin of, uh, from sin by the precious blood of Christ. But to be married or joined to Him, we must choose to be saved by Him. Think about what's said over in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and in verse 2, Paul writes, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. All saints, from all time, from all places, a.k.a. the church, are married to Christ. That is a wonderful, wonderful statement. But what Paul says next, to be presented to Him as pure virgins, i got to admit, that's terrifying. That should be terrifying to all of us. Imagine this young woman in, in, in the Jewish custom, this young woman who is about to accept the agreements of the ketubah. The wine is poured out in front of her, but she knows that she is not pure. She knows that on her wedding night, that will all come to light. Her groom is expecting purity, and she can't offer that. There is no hope there of a long, loving marriage. There is only the fear of rejection, the fear of disappointment, punishment, very likely death. That is where we were. Over in Romans chapter 3. Turn over there with me just a moment. Romans chapter 3. Look in verses 21 through 23. It says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have committed spiritual fornication. There is no way we could stand before the bridegroom as pure virgins. But then let's go back to our image again. Let's go back to that bride as she sits fearfully. Then imagine the groom looking across the table at his fearful bride. And he says to her, I know. And I love you. And I know what you have done. But I'm going to wipe that slate clean. And from here on out, you be faithful to me. And to me, you will be pure. 
Romans 3 verse 24 says, Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Christ looks to you and he looks to me and he says, I love you and I know. I know that you're not pure. I know that you have done foolish things in the past. I know that you have committed spiritual fornication. But this blood covenant will wipe that away. Wipe every bit of that away if only you will partake of it. See, not only did Jesus die for us, forgiving us of our sins. But we also need to step back and realize that other part about the ketubah, where the, the, the prices that were paid to the, to the groom, the price, or excuse me, to the father, the price for, for the, the bride price in case of a divorce, but also the, the real estate, the, the investment that was being made, the, the estate, no, not the real estate, the estate of the, of the bride that was given to, to, the, to the groom. What he had to gain from this marriage. We also need to look at that and look at what we had to offer Christ. Because that's what, the, that's what would happen in that time. The estate of the bride would be contributed to the groom. But what did we have to offer? Because we were poor. And we were desolate. And we were stained. What did Jesus have to gain from all of this? Romans chapter 5 makes it pretty clear. In verse 6, it says, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would, even dare, would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more having been reconciled, We shall be saved by his life. And not only thus, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Christ had nothing to gain from this. We had nothing to offer him. No riches, no glory. We were broke. We were morally and spiritually bankrupt and filthy. He did it, as Romans 5 says, because of love. They did it because, as Romans 3 says, because of righteousness. We had nothing to offer for the great debt of sin that was upon us. But because of the righteous, loving Father and His Son, we were were offered. We were offered this blood covenant. This marriage proposal. And that's why we must accept our ketubah. When there are those who will say, all you must do is accept Jesus into your life. When they say such things as that, they are saying those things by, and missing a point that is made multiple times in scriptures. It takes more than just accepting that Jesus poured out the blood for your forgiveness. The bride could have looked at that offering as he slid that cup across the table and he sits anxiously waiting for her response. She could have looked at it and she could have said with all the love and sincerity in her heart, thank you. Thank you, I see your intentions for me to be your wife. By pouring out this this wine offering, by making this blood covenant, and I want to be your wife. And then she just sat there. It wouldn't take very long for this to become awkward. 
You see, to accept the offering that he was giving, she had to partake of the offering that was being offered. Likewise, Jesus' blood does make us pure. Acts 22 and verse 16 says it washes away our sins. His blood, his blood offering sanctifies us. Hebrews 13 verse 12 says, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. But we must partake of that blood offering. Over in Romans chapter 6, down in verse 3, Romans 6 verse 3 says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And notice now verse 5, five for, we ha- for if we have become united with, one, with him in the likeness of his death, in order that our body... Excuse me. Excuse me. So we become united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. When we come in contact with Jesus' blood in baptism, we are being made united with him. We are being joined with him in the likeness of his death. And therefore, baptism is vitally, vitally important. And that's not, that's not just a Church of Christ thing. That's not just a thing that the Church of Christ espouses out. That's not an idea that's been concocted over centuries of twisting the Scripture. That's not a Reformation thing. That is imagery that comes fresh from the context of the culture that Jesus spoke to. 1 Peter 3.21, baptism now doth save us. Baptism makes us pure virgins, spiritually accepted by Jesus. Baptism signs our marriage contract to Him and His blood. Baptism adds us individually to His bride, the church. These are the terms of our ketubah. Will we accept them? Jesus paid the bride price to our Father. It was beyond, it was beyond steep. It was His life. And we must make the choice. Will we be committed to being His bride? By believing that He is. That He came to pay that price for you and for me. And while He is gone, He will return to collect His bride. So are we going to be ready? Will will we be legally bound to our groom, Christ, forever? I don't even need to think about that. Maybe the next time we partake of the Lord's Supper. Just for a moment, turn over to Matthew. Matthew chapter 22. Excuse me, Matthew chapter 26. In Matthew chapter 26, read with me in verses 27. It says, And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. His blood was poured out for our forgiveness to make us pure. By drinking of that cup, as we have done this morning, in a sense, we are renewing our wedding vows. We are accepting that offer again, examining our lives. Are we striving each day to be pure for our groom? Reminding ourselves that we are His bride and He is our groom. We were purchased at a price and we belong to no one else. But also notice verse 29. He says, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. 
He will drink it with us new again in His Father's kingdom. Over in John chapter 14. John 14 verses 1 through 4. He says this, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. Just as was the custom of the Jews. Likewise, Jesus is leaving, but he will return. And that brings us to our heavenly consummation. That brings us to today and possibly tomorrow and possibly, Lord willing, next year and the year after that. The event that the bride is so eagerly awaiting, the second coming of Christ, as described over in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Read with me verse 16. Just the first half of verse 16. <clears throat> says this, I'm in chapter 5, <laughs> let's give chapter 4 verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a shout the arch, and of the archangel, as Jesus in his great procession descend from the, crown, from, the, from the clouds, the Lord is coming, and the latter part of that verse says, and the angel with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive will remain and will be caught up together with them and in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. The blast from the trumpet. The shout of the archangel. I can only imagine the glory of that sound. The groom, our Savior, has returned. And now the pure virgin bride of Christ, the church, as is described over in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2, is presented to her groom. The fact is, Jesus is coming back. John 14 again tells us that. We know where He has gone, and we know the way. Verse 6 goes on to tell us it is through Him. It is through Christ. And verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians 4 affirms to us, at that time we will always, so we shall always be with the Lord. What a love story. You know, when you think of maybe some of you out there, the fans of these Hollywood tear jerk, overcome all odds, roller coaster, up and down love stories. But you have to admit, man has never penned a more romantic story than that of the real life events of our selfless Savior, who gave his life to buy his bride's freedom sanctify her to Him, blesses her with great gifts of peace and joy, knowing that even though they are separated, He is preparing a place for her, for them to be united for all eternity, together, forever, and one day, very soon, He will come back to retrieve her and take her home. What a love story. But there's one last stage, the feast. What about that third stage. What's that going to be like? Well, honestly, I don't know. And we just can't know. Matthew chapter 22, we read a little bit about it. The parable of the wedding feast, which reveals some of the extravagance of it. The king slaughters the oxen and the fatted livestock. See, this was a big to-do. Put a lot of effort into this. 
in Revelation chapter 19 that we started out in. Let's flip back over there. Revelation 19, verse 7 through 9. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean for the, time, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then He said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It tells us that it is a blessed event. We just can't know for certain exactly what it will be like. But I can know this. I can know that it will be exactly what God wants it to be. And our God is an awesome God. And it will be in His presence, the presence of, of, of Jehovah and of His Son, our groom, Jesus the Christ, and His Holy Spirit. i got to say, that sounds like an awesome event to attend. But there is one more sobering illustration of the wedding feast. It's found over in Matthew chapter 25. We alluded to it earlier. Verses 1 through 13. Let's just read this together. It says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Jesus is coming, but his coming will be unexpected. Only the Father knows. Will you be ready? Do you have your lamps trimmed? Are you being sanctified each day? Setting yourself apart each day for Christ. Are you looking and therefore preparing for His return? In just a moment, we're going to sing number 329. Go ahead and take out your, your, your songbooks. Open to this page. God calling yet. Shall I not hear? God is calling. He is inviting us to the wedding of His, bride, of, of his Son and the bride, the church, and invites us to be a part of that bride. Do we see the beautiful picture that is painted of the marriage of Christ to His bride? It is the picture of our salvation. Is it the picture of your salvation? Would you be His bride today? Would you take Christ to be your lawfully and wedded groom? Would you allow Him to wash you of your spots and of your blemishes? Would you allow Him to forgive you of your sins? Would you allow Him to give you eternal life? If so then we need to accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, not on our terms, but on His, the groom of His church, by confessing Him before men, by being united with Him in death through baptism, by repenting from our sins and turning to newness of life. If there's some way we can help you with that this morning, I encourage you, please let it be known right now as we stand and as we sing.